This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. On today's episode, we are talking with Noah Ryan. He is an esoteric health Twitter mutual. He writes a lot about health optimization, very knowledgeable about our biology, also recovered from post-concussive syndrome. We had a really great chat about decentralized living, the nuances of health optimization, as well as supplementation. Bit of bit of a technical difficulties getting started here, but that never stops us. So Noah, I guess let's start from the beginning. Yeah, like we have a lot of similarities. I think we're going to dive into maybe concussion, brain recovery, brain optimization too. Um, but how did you get into health optimization? That's a great question, and you know I'm still chewing on that question and how to answer it after years of being probed. And what I've come to realize is it was a, a, a number of levels, right? So like health is an onion and there's something that gets you into that first layer and then the second layer and then the third layer. The first layer just came about because I was a small kid and I hated things that were outside of my control. Like my earliest memories were things where I was kind of like stuck, you know, like me in a crib at daycare, me being pinned in wrestling. It was really frustrating. Uh, I couldn't control my mood. I couldn't control my emotions. I couldn't control my height. But the one thing I could control was the inputs and outputs of my body. And I kind of went all in on that. I started learning a lot about, you know, basic bodybuilding stuff, like typical, you know, meathead stuff. And over a period of a few years, I went from this super tiny, small dude to a pretty jacked high schooler. I remember my uh, senior superlative was most gains, which was super (laughs) tight. Uh, Big ego was for me. And then um, went to college, you know, full degeneracy. I was jacked. I was not healthy. And I was always feel good, but it was almost like a manic feel good, right? Like you can kind of feel when it's like, I'm kind of running on fumes here and this doesn't feel sustainable. I never really was able to kind of dive deep. And then I actually got a few concussions and I didn't pay attention to those concussions right away um, because, you know, I was still kind of uh, a degenerate. And then I started realizing some issues with it longer term that I was like, this kind of sucks, right? I became less articulate. My memory was shot. You know, I still have missing patches of memory. And um, all of that kind of was just building up until I got to my senior year of college where I kind of left all of the like social stuff behind, the typical college lifestyle behind. And I started digging into it. I just started picking up books. Um, it also parlayed with me being more serious about my career and my professional life. And um, that just opened up the rabbit hole of, wow, like this feels really empowering that I can make some serious strides in my health. And all it requires is me to just pick up this knowledge. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely similar to me, but like the the overarching message that I think is important and that we talk about a lot is kind of like things that are, you know, outside of your control and you don't like kind of when you're not in the driver's seat of, of your life. So even at an early age, it seemed like that resonated with you. Like you wanted to be in control and kind of, although that, you know, deviated with the classic college, you know, degeneracy, which definitely I was in the same boat as well. Um, it was a great 
anyway. Yeah, no, it's a great time. And yeah, social connections and, and memories that last for life. But what kind of tipped you over the edge? Like at the end there, was it like, you know, because it's really challenging to leave behind like the majority of a social life. Uh, were you kind of just getting tired of it? Or was there like a breaking point in terms of your health where you were like, holy shit, like I'm actually doing like damage to my brain and I need to get a hold of this? Yeah. So I was done with the whole college thing. By the time that I came back from studying abroad in Thailand, uh, my junior year, by that time, like I, you know, you spend six months in a foreign country, completely immersed, I, I would say, and like learning these new things, you can't go back to drinking on a Tuesday and going to a bowling alley and going to bars. So I was done with that, but I had to wait it out. Uh, because I was living in like that fraternity setting. And by the end of that year was when I moved out. And that's when I'm like full foot on the gas. It's time for me to like rediscover myself. And the reason for that was that, you know, you in in those social settings, there's a lot of compromise. Like if you were like me and you wanted to really just focus on like riding that social wave, really being a part of that social thing, like that was my goal going into college is like, you know, the whole college fraternity life. You can't really be like your true authentic self. So I was just like poised as this like partying guy crazy guy, not a lot of sentiment, like sentimentality, like if that's a word. Um, but like, I wasn't able to kind of like really be my, my real self and go into the nuance and depth of who I am in my interests and my personalities. I always felt like that needed to be hidden. And then I was just like, you know, fuck it. Like if I want to be the person I want to be. And during that time I was starting with a cybersecurity startup and I was really, really making strides there. It's like if I needed wanted to be the person I had to be, I would have to have a complete identity change and a, a total and utter identity change. I needed to become a new person. And that's what I did. Luckily, I graduated during COVID. So COVID happened. I was able to, I spent some time elsewhere. And then I went back to Minnesota and I spent eight months just completely reinventing myself. At the time, I was on SSRIs because doctors tell you like, you know, hey, listen, the reason that you feel like shit is because you have a chemical imbalance. Obviously, that's not the case. Um, I was on SSRIs, I was being prescribed all these drugs. And I was like, fuck that, like, I'm taking this entirely in my own hands, I got off of those. And I genuinely became a new person in eight months. I look back on those, I look back on that period, once a week, and I'm like, holy shit, like, how did I do that? And it's still baffling to me to this day that I was able to pull that off. Eight months of pretty much solitude, um, just really incredible personal and professional development in a very short period of time. Yeah, I mean, you can you can have like a lot of growth, I think, in a short amount of time. Um, it's really interesting, too, because I feel like it forces you in these situations, like when you've had that health background of like multiple mm. concussions or Tristan can relate to that one really heavy. But I feel like when you go through a medical crisis, it sort of forces you to get your ducks in a row in some shape or form. And I feel like I definitely felt like because I was, I was, let's say I was 23 when I went through a bunch of my health struggles and 18 before, before some of that too, it kind of forces you to grow up in a different way. I think you, you, you gain wisdom that maybe some people, it takes decades to, to learn or know, like learn about themselves. I mean, I, I talk to people that are twice my age and I feel like they still don't really understand who they are, um, on, on like an individual level, I don't think if they they know like exactly what their values are. I think they have values, but I think it's it's less so what they've decided for themselves, and less and more so what society has sort of put on them as being their values. And so that's where I find 
actually a lot of thankfulness in, in these journeys, but I'd love to sort of dive into your, um, into some of your recovery and things you did and what you found was important. I know we're going to talk about supplements later and stuff like that, but, but how did, how did changing your entire lifestyle sort of play a role in that? And how was that on a social circumstance too? Because we were talking about this sort of pre-show, but you mentioned like a lot of your friends aren't doing what you're doing. And so mm-hmm. how does that play into this? And I think, how do you stay strong during that too? How do you keep that uh, faith in yourself when others around you just aren't into what you're doing? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, Ryan, first of all, you bring up a great point. And I want to preface that a lot of this growth happened just because I really, really have a deep curiosity and desire to have like a certain sense of self-awareness, right? Every morning, like for years, I'd wake up and just ask myself, like, who am I? Who am I? I stopped asking myself that question. And that's when I really found out who I was. It's like, I'm, I am whoever I want to be at this point in time. But like that frantic desire for self, like for self-awareness forced me to observe myself objectively for an extended period of time to the point where I was writing down every time I did an action and how I felt after that, right? So anytime I went above or below baseline, I would note that. It's like, okay, cool. Like I feel really, really good after I hop on a call. And this has happened 17 times in the last three weeks. I can objectively say with certain semblance of assurity that uh, of assurance that this is good and I should do this more often. Anyway, you asked, uh, you were you were saying how that affected me socially. I believe there's another component to that question as well. Was there something else? You're on mute, by the way. So, yeah, sort of. It was... Um... It was socially, but also how do you, it was sort of how you do, how do you stay on course with knowing what you know, what you need to do when others around you, maybe even people that are close, aren't doing the same thing. And I know in a sense, you've sort of, I want to say isolated yourself. Maybe that's not the right word, but that is you the right sort word. Of, you, but you, I don't know if that's, is that like a necessity or is it possible to coexist? I feel like there's, there's a balance, but there's definitely hard lines that you have to draw in the sand. And I feel like that's a difficult part for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, it goes back to that initial thing you were saying. It comes down to self-awareness. I knew who I was. I know that I'm a chameleon. If I go into an environment, I am going to emulate that environment out of a natural desire to compete, quote unquote, not compete against one another, but compete within that setting. That's why I loved college because I was around a bunch of people my age. We're all aspiring for the same goals. I know what that baseline is. I know what I, that I just need to beat that. So I knew for me, it's like, this is going to require complete and utter isolation. I have to delete all of my social media accounts. I have to delete any semblance of me falling back into that person that I once was. So I did that. And it sucked. I remember because I would like have a few things that I do. I would be a a complete aloof, like when it came to social settings, I completely atrophied my social skills because I was so deep in my head. I was just I was deep in psychology. I was absolutely binging Nietzsche and Jung, and even Freud. So my sense of, of society and, and like interactions with the, with other humans was completely atrophied. Now that was necessary, but I, it got to a point where like all things and particularly with me, it got old. I got enough out of that situation that I needed. Um, the one thing that I really did improve there was my professional communication because that's the only social communication I was having was within the professional world, right? I was in a very technical industry in cybersecurity. I was talking all the time with my analysts and my developers. 
Um, and that was really the only communication I had. Now, there was a point, like I said, where that got old. And I realized it because I started training martial arts super heavily when the gym started opening back up. And I went back and I had these social interactions that weren't just work-based, that were camaraderie, that were friendships, that were brotherhood. And I was like, oh, this is equally, if not more important than what I'm doing individually. And that's what snapped me out of it. That's what, what got me back to like, oh, like this is the life I'm supposed to live. Um, but yeah, it took complete and utter isolation. But to be fair, once I did that, um, what did I say? I, I knew that I would come back. I would come back to those friends that I had. I would come back to some semblances of those lifestyles that I had. I just needed separation for those eight months to rebuild myself into a point where I'm comfortable enough where I can go back and not be tempted to fall back into that old person that I was. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the chameleon part is, is so I can relate to that so much. It's like I feel like I've had such a diverse group of friends as well. And it's always like, yeah, you want to like you can fit into pretty much any social setting. So then I was kind of same way. I, I pretty isolated myself completely because I knew like that was necessary for healing. And I think that's okay if you like know that, but it can be so tough. And it's like, you're creating this identity for yourself. And that's the biggest problem. I, I think with people in college too, it's like they get out of college to graduate and they're like, you know, you go to high school to go to college and then you go to college to get a job, you get this job. And then it's like, who really are you? Like, what are you actually passionate about? And I think that's a major issue with so many young adults but for me, it was, it was like, yeah, I kind of found that out. But then I had very few friends in that same mindset. So that's where I feel like you kind of have to have that strength to get through those periods. But you also have to be willing to like put yourself out there. So for you, I guess joining a gym was like a big moment as well. And then, you know, was it another breaking like milestone or whatever you want to call it? Like when you started getting back on social media, talking about like health related stuff, because for me, that was big. Putting myself out there was a huge challenge, but now in the past year, it's really taken off in terms of how many like-minded people I've met. And that's really made me feel like just more welcome, more part of a community after, you know, being so isolated for so long. That's a great question. So there was a, an extended period of time between me going and, and, you know, essentially being in that isolation phase and creating content in mass. I've always loved public speaking. I've always mm -hmm. loved putting myself out there. Like even when I was in high school and college, like I was always the guy that was posting like stories on like social media, right? Like all funny stuff, just like very enjoyable stuff. And it, I, I like that people got a kick out of it, but I never felt uncomfortable being in front of the camera. I, to be honest, I love it. Nothing gets me more excited. Um, and especially with public speaking, like I still want to do that. I want to talk in front of a bunch of people in the real world. Now, between that, right, I uh, was in cybersecurity. I was a co-founder of this threat intelligence company, I'm super deep in it. And I don't give a shit about cybersecurity. I'm going to be honest. I don't care about the technical nature of things whatsoever. I don't really care about computers that much. But um, it was like a challenge to me of like, oh, I'm not supposed to be here. Let me see how far I can get in it. So I went from like, you know, interning at this company to like leading operations and getting a pretty, pretty significant sum of equity. And then I started training martial arts. And then that kind of snapped and made me realize that that wasn't me. That was almost like an ego driven pursuit. I just wanted to prove that I could do it. I wanted to prove that I could hang with the big dogs. And I did. So I quit that. I left a large sum of equity on the table. I luckily vested some of it. And then um, at that point, I was like almost burnt out from business. So I went and I found these guys that were starting up a food truck, two engineers, funny enough, 
because I was really good at speaking engineered lingo at that point. And I was like, guys, let me help you run this. Like, let me help you start this. So we did that. Uh, I did that for like four months. That was all I was doing was just training martial arts and like trying to get this food truck up and running. It was great. I loved like the the economics of a food truck. It was awesome. But uh, I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do again. So then after that, um, I quit that. <clears throat> Actually, well, I quit that. And then right after I went to Peru and did ayahuasca for two weeks, you know, I, I think that was insightful. I'm not really like a huge proponent of people going out and doing a bunch of psychedelics. It has its risk. It has, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't like the way that it's mean culturally now where everyone's like, Oh, like I just quit my barista job at LA, like better go to the jungle and do ayahuasca. I'm an experimenter. I like experimenting with things and I'm very confident in my ability to like reset myself to baseline. Uh, and I, I think some people just can't handle that stuff. So anyway, I did that and that kind of made me a floating head for a while. Funny enough, I was going down to Florida <clears throat> to spend a few months with my family that just moved down there. And uh, some dude called me um, and from college, a few years older than me, he had an agency and he's like, hey, listen, like, I, um, I want you, I was like wondering if you did operations consulting, because uh, I got this agency and I was like, yeah, like that, there's nothing I love more than like setting up systems and like building an operating business that requires you to not work a lot. So I started working with him. And then uh, funny enough, I took a job with a nootropic startup, like a, uh, like a telemedicine startup in New York was there for a total of one week. And then I left. And then that was the turning point where it's like, fuck it, I'm going to Mexico. So I went to Mexico and um, that kind of opened up the floodgates, which eventually led me to starting to post stuff online because I met someone in Mexico City. Uh, someone, his name's Sam Parr. He runs My First Million. And I was like, Sam, what's up, man? Like, I love your stuff. At that time, I was doing the agency consulting, helping agencies essentially systematize and scale. And I didn't really have anything for myself from a public standpoint. He's like, what are you doing? Like, where are you? I'm like, fuck, I'm nowhere. And then um, that's when I got on Twitter. Because I was like, I'm, I'm never letting that happen again. I'm never meeting someone and not having something to show for myself in what is the new world of online presence. No, I mean, that's pretty incredible. Um, it's interesting. My The food truck thing really made me think of a story. Uh, my, I have a friend named Ben who's uh, has dealt with a lot of autoimmune issues. And he, we were we talked about what we wanted to do. And he started a, a food truck where I think he's making – it's like probably the healthiest pizza you can make using like real natural ingredients and stuff like that. But it's it's a journey. I mean, I think anyone – I think it's really good practice for anyone that, that wants to do something hard. Um but, but you learn a lot, you start your own business. You'll never learn more than like starting your own business. I definitely relate to you on the front of when you were working for, uh, when you talk about the security job stuff um, and wanting to like do something hard and prove to yourself you can do it. I think that's a valuable skill to have, even if it's not necessarily your life path. I think you can learn a lot about yourself and, and that's valuable. And I think going back to um, what Tristan was saying earlier about about sort of college life and stuff is I don't feel like we challenge ourselves enough. I certainly didn't like, I, I definitely was someone who took like the path of least resistance until it became medically necessary that it was no longer going to work for me to take the path of least resistance. And I think unfortunately that's like a way a lot of people have to learn those things, but I think taking initiative and being curious, like you were saying earlier is a really valuable skill set. Like just being curious and trying things and knowing you're going to fuck up for lack of a better word um, is, is definitely a valuable skill. And it's something that I think just not enough people have. Um, I don't think, I don't think people are 
innately, I, I don't know if I want to say that, but I feel like there aren't that many <clears throat> innately curious people until it becomes necessary, like necessary, whether that's financially, they need to be curious about how to diversify or whether it's their health, you know what I mean? And so I'd love your thoughts on sort of like, I mean, maybe it's like impossible. It's sort of a question I, I like to ask every one of our guests at this point. It's like, how do we reach these people? Um, yeah. Well, to first take, of all, great point, Ryan. Continue. Oh, no, I was just saying that it's, I, I'm not so concerned about reaching out as much as just letting the education out there and having people find it. But how do we, how do we pass on that same curiosity to perhaps like our children and like next generational sort of things. Cause I think, I feel like the only way to make it a systemic thing is going to, you have to like basically just pass it on like innate wisdom because I, I don't think you're going to reach enough people in modern society unless something really, really bad happens. Like obviously there's more curiosity than there was three years ago in things such as health and, and decentralization of your finance and all that stuff. Um, but I feel like, a lot of the things are skills you have to pass on. Yeah, no, that's a great point. There's always the discussion of nature versus nurture and both of them play factors. At the end of the day, I was in that boat, right? I had my innate curiosities and like, I've always been a guy that hyper-focuses on something, gets obsessed with it and it becomes my entire personality and identity for like three months and I get bored and I drop it. Uh, and that caused some like pretty big identity issues until you just realize that that's the type of person you are. Like your identity is someone who gets really obsessed with something, learns so much in a small extended period of time, and then is comfortable with dropping it and leaving it. Now, in terms of like me, I used to not be a guy that I still like, I'm really not driven by like typical notions of success. I've had tastes of them and like, it just doesn't move the needle for me, which is kind of unfortunate, um, but fortunate at the same time. But before, like I wanted to coast, right? Like I was just in a different headset. I just wanted to coast. I wanted to get a really good job. I wanted to get paid really well and do the least amount of work and get the maximum amount of reward possible. But then I just realized that that wasn't going to fulfill me. And more importantly, it wasn't going to help me reach my potential, right? I got obsessed with this idea of self-actualization, the whole Nietzsche idea of being like the, the overman, right? Like the ubermensch. And I was obsessed with it. And I knew that I was going to take a very non-traditional path. Now, in terms of where that curiosity came from, I look back a lot and like, what was my environment growing up? I had both of my parents are, you know, I, I, I call them nerds, you know, and, and they are and they, they, they admit it. Um, both like pretty deep in science. Both of them worked really, really hard. My mom is just the most innately curious person I've ever met, almost to a fault where she's just like always curious about something. She'll become obsessed with something and she'll like pour hard into it and then get bored of it. My dad, very different, very type A, very driven and just like focused on the goal. And, you know, that did cause a lot of dissonance. That's what happens, right? You know, when you have two two parents from completely different cultures, from completely different upbringings, completely different mentalities, and they come together. And now those genes are interpooled in like this offspring. So I think I have like a weird uh, combination of those two that builds a lot of dissonance, like I said. But um, I just I always knew that the only driving factor to my success is if I become really curious about something, because the only two things that I think I really have going for me is that I'm curious and I'm able to learn really fast. So those two things were like, cool, like I will get farther if I don't focus on goals, if I don't focus on metrics and I just chase my curiosity than I ever will focusing on a number, focusing on a level of prestige, focusing on a title. And um, the only logical explanation there was like, oh, cool, like I've got that. Well, now I just need to figure out how I learn best and how I can best leverage this curiosity where it's not a sunk cost. And that for me was like, well, if I put stuff out there into the world and I help other people, it'll always be worth it. And it'll always drive me more than if I'm trying to solve problems for myself. 
in total honesty, I think my, and this goes for a lot of people, my problems are way less interesting than other people's problems, right? Because my problems are, are, you know, they're not foreign to me. I know them very well. I'm accustomed to them. I'm familiar with them. Other people's problems, it's like you get, you get access to a whole nother world, right? And you get to just dive in and you get to play with all these details and you get to suck in all this information at once. So that was my logic. It's like anything that I do, I'm going to approach it as if I was helping somebody else. And then you get to a certain point or a level of, uh, objectivity with your own self, right? That whole separation of like mind versus brain. So then you can just objectively observe yourself. And, you know, Jordan Peterson had a great quote where it's like, treat yourself as someone that you're responsible for. And I think really that was the biggest factor for me of like actually taking some of those laurels that I had and applying it to my personal situation. Yeah, I think that's a great way to kind of encapsulate that. I mean, it's almost like that's like a real version of like self-care and self-identity to find that all out. But I, I like the piece about the goals and kind of milestones and metrics. I think people can get really caught up in that. And then it kind of sways how they feel about certain things or it's like, oh, should you be pursuing that? And for me, I, and I'm curious what you think. It's like I have like this long-term vision of like what I want to achieve in life. And it's like who knows how the hell I'll get there. The path is, you know, could be – changing by the week but I have this long-term vision of what I want and it's just kind of like I'm waiting to see and, and pursuing different things that'll show me the path forward do you do you also share like that as well because I'm not big on like goal setting or milestones either I think having a, an innate clear vision of the end goal is is really just more important or or just in general what you're passionate about what you want to pursue and then you kind of just go with what makes sense in the moment it's very important having that vision for me. It's not, it's not what do I want to do? It's who I want to be. Yeah. Right. And just visualizing that person. I used to be really good at that. I unfortunately don't do it as much anymore. Different season of my life. But one thing that I did notice is I used to set a lot of goals. I used to have really clear visions and I'd write them all down. I was a prolific journaler and I, I achieved all of those goals when I stopped pursuing them. They just happened <laughs> intrinsically every single one of them, every single one of them. And I look back and I look back at all these things that I said I wanted to do and I look at my life now, I'm like, holy shit, like I'm doing those to a T to the point where it's like, I saw one where it's like, man, I have this vision of myself, you know, I'm on a beach in a foreign country driving a motorcycle, I'm surfing, you know, I have X, Y, and Z. And then like, I'm reading that as I'm doing it, I was like, oh, shit. And like another one was there was something that I said way before I even considered the idea of posting content online. It's like, I really want to share this information with other people. And I laid out these topics that I would cover. And like, I just want to get this out into the world. Uh, maybe and then in parentheses, I'd maybe Twitter and uh, boom, flash forward two years. And that's exactly what I was doing. So there's something there, the power of just feeding your subconscious ideas and then letting it run itself. Uh, I was never able to get those goals when I was fixated on them. But flash forward, once I was OK with putting those to the side, they all happened organically. And I find that really interesting. Yeah, I think it's almost like the path becomes like more clear when you kind of become more objective. Right. Because sometimes you try and force a way forward and it's. Like you think you're just so dead set on something, but to be honest, if you're just more open to other options, yeah, you'd be surprised how often it'll lead back right to kind of where you wanted to be in that, in that area of your life. So I found the same thing too, because it's, it's hard to like break through in, in some of these facets and it's not always right. And you almost have to try more things than you're willing to set forward to do if you do set like goals and milestones if you're just like i'm gonna do x well like what if x doesn't work out 
then you have to shift and it's then your whole entire plan is different. But in reality, like that's life and, and that's like going to happen. So, yeah, but I'm curious. Yeah, you can go. Sorry. I just want to go back to something that Ryan said, you know, you were saying that you meet people that are twice your age and they really don't feel like they have things figured out yet. That was probably one of my biggest fears is seeing people who are having the same realizations that I'm having at 40, right? Mm. When they already have all the liabilities or responsibilities is a better word. I'm saying that. And, you know, I think for me, it's like I got really good at failing fast. I do think that I had a certain level of quick learning when it comes to realizing that, hey, this isn't what I want to do. So I was able to rack up a bunch of quote unquote failures or learning lessons really, really early on. I was able to get those reps in really, really early on. So it's a lot clearer now because I've had those. A lot of people don't start doing that. You know, they, they drag their feet. They stay in a job that they don't like for way too long. They stay in a place they don't like for way too long. Relationships, whatever it may be, I can never do that. And I've always been comfortable with starting from scratch, right? The one thing that I value the most is mobility. So if you're okay with starting from scratch, you know what your baseline is. And like the worst case scenario is you really do become fearless. And that's where I'm at. You know, at the end of the day, I could lose everything tomorrow and be completely fine and be totally happy and like I've, I've done that multiple times where it's like I don't like what I'm doing I'm gonna burn all of it to the ground and then you know start from start from scratch obviously there's a certain level of maturity that comes where it realizes like you don't have to burn burn the boats like utilize the parts of that boat to build your next one you know don't just throw it away you know it's really interesting because I, I one thought came to me when you were saying that um and I think about my dad a lot when it comes to like older people that I know that I feel like have aspirations, maybe they're not fleshed out, but they never really pursued any of them per se. And they sort of fell in that line, but he was of that generation too, where it's like, go to college, get a job, raise a family, retire when you're 62 or whatever. Um, and it's definitely not the path I personally want to follow. Um, but it's curious because it, it brings up this thought of fear. And I feel like fear holds people from following what they really want to do, even if it's not fully fleshed out. I'm definitely similar to you where I kind of, I feel like I'm kind of going with the flow and I, I know sort of parts of the angle, but um, I'm not so anal about the steps. I'm kind of letting the chips fall and seeing what works and what doesn't work, uh, which has definitely been hard for me. I'm definitely one of those people that I'm OCD, so I like to have things lined up but I get really frustrated when they don't work out. So for me, it's been like getting used to things sort of not working out the way you plan and being okay with that and then rolling with it and adjusting, which is in all facets of life anyways. Um, but one thing I want to ask you about before we just jump on to other stuff is that, that fear factor, because I feel like fear can either be a huge motivator for you to actually pursue things or it keeps you back inevitably forever. And so was that any drive for you? Did fear play in like, was that fear of you ending up like that person that's in their forties, not having done what they really wanted to set out to do? Was that in the back of your mind at all? Or were you just kind of rolling with it? Yeah, no, that gives me goosebumps because I, I have a, I think I have a malfunctioning fear response. And I think a lot of it was from like, uh, desensitization from, you know, being prescribed SSRIs. Um, like a, a, an inhibited emotional response to some things. And for me, like, I really don't have a lot of fears. Uh, my biggest fear, though, always was like not reaching my full potential. I was always afraid of, of just being average, um, you know, not even a fear, just like a, a distaste. And th that was just such a big driving factor is once again, going back into that observational mindset and like retraining your brain to observe everything objectively. 
and looking at all of these adults that I grew up with. And when I was a kid, you think adults are infallible. They have everything figured out. And you get older and you just realize they're wrinkly kids and you can see it in their physiognomy. You can see it in their behavior and in their voice. There are things that they regret. And just sitting with that and just, you know, being like, what, what is it that this person regrets? I know there's something there. This person regrets something. And then you can see it. And that, that, that gets imprinted in your mind. You, you can't get rid of that once you see that. Once you see elderly, not even elderly people, but older people for their regrets, and it's like, cool, I'm going to try to avoid that. It's like a reverse mentorship. I always call it a reverse mentorship. I learned from looking at people and identifying what not to do more than I did from having direct mentors. Because uh, it's a lot easier to determine what you don't want to do than to determine what you do want to do, right? It's, it's more infallible in, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, living in a lot of different places and trying a lot of things, yeah, it like ruled out a lot of options for me. But the fear thing, totally, I can totally relate to that because for sports, like I played sports my whole life and in college and it was like I was never like the most talented person. So I always just had this innate drive to like outwork everybody. And that's still like definitely holds true. But the fear thing, Ryan, to your question, that 100% was is me when I was like graduated college and started feeling better and I was just learning about you know all the systems of how the world works and I was just looking at my dad as well and I was like wow he's the example of like someone who's just worked so hard their whole life and still has gotten screwed by the system because they never took like that risk to like leave the system and you know build their own business or try certain things so then I realized I was like wow well like working hard is not enough. Like you have to take that leap of faith and try stuff, bet on yourself. And that's why I like, no, it's so like, it's inspiring. I think for people to hear that you've done that many, like you're willing to just start from scratch. Cause that is the biggest like fear or hurdle that so many people have. Even myself, like right now, it's like, I have this corporate job that pays well and a lot of side passions. And I'm like, ah, I could just totally quit and like go all in. But I'm like, well, it's a nice like safety blanket. So, um, you know, timing that right. And, and it's totally different with every situation. But I, I think that's really important for people to hear because at the end of the day, you, you do need to take a leap of faith in some regard or else you're just going to be another cog in the system and you're really never going to kind of make it out to live the life you want to live. But first, you have to figure out kind of what that actually is. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I think that's one of the big things is like fear of like leaving that comfort. So with me, it's like I hated being comfortable. I could never get comfortable. The second I get comfortable, I get complacent. So like I never I never had like a, a real job. Um, I never even when I had like a very comfortable apartment, I immediately got antsy and I just decided to get rid of all my shit. And I lived super minimalist for like a year to the point where I was like cooking out of one walk. I was eating out of one bowl not because I had to, but because I wanted to. It was an experiment. And I think that desire to remove all external factors, remove all external crutches, maybe that's what you want to call it, enabled me to just go and do whatever the fuck I want. I knew very early on that every single item I owned took up a little bit of a headspace in, in my brain, and I just felt better without it. And that's why I was like, well, shit, like if I just own nothing and I move from place to place, like that is going to make me think so much more clearly. And I realize it to a T and that's why I still do that to this day. Yeah, I think people hold on to like material objects. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm moving literally right now and it's driving me nuts because I have more stuff than like I have the past few times I've moved. 
um, just because I've been in one place longer than I have before. And uh, I'm the same way. It's like so annoying. And it's like, yeah, you need stuff if like you want to do certain things like, you know, backpacking, skiing, whatever. But in general, like it holds people down so much. I've had so many friends. I mean, whether it's dogs or cats or literal stuff, it's like, no, I can't just pick up everything and, and move or like travel or there's just too many obligations. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's speaking about material stuff. It's crazy how much stuff people have. <laughs> yeah. like you, you don't even need money to have an accumulation of stuff. It's insane. Um, I look at my folks basement. I mean, Tristan, you've been there. Like you, you see the boxes that have been there since when they moved in in 2010 and are still there. It's crazy how much stuff you can just, you accumulate and you don't want to get rid of it because there's some sort of emotional I, attachment. But I think it's the same thing to comfort. Like for me right now, my fear is like, I know I got to take a jump right now. And it's going to happen because I've already kind of mentally decided. But it's like, uh, it's it's letting go of that comfort of security that I think is super hard. Yeah, and the stuff is like, I think people are just living too much in the past. Like it's one thing if it's like, yeah, it's actually functionally you need. But you're just... And it's sentimental, but like really 95% of that crap you can get rid of and you're just dwindling in a headspace that's in the past because you're not focused on the only thing that's important and that's the time you have in front of you, not behind you. So, yeah. Yeah. We're still hardwired into the scarcity mindset that we pretty much existed in for the entirety of human existence, right? Where every single item had some sort of utility. I mean, it wasn't much long ago that we were in the barter system, right? Yeah. So. People still get caught up in that barter system, that idea that this thing has a certain level of utility. But then you just have to, like, you have to transpose that with the utility that would that you'd have if you didn't have it. So, Tristan, you're moving today. I'm moving tomorrow, <laughs> and I haven't even like thought yet. Like, I'm just gonna p- pick up all my stuff and put it in my bag tonight, and I'll be good that's to go. That's amazing, right? Like, that's all I have. To do. Yeah, like I have some steak I have to finish, which is fine. Like. I have nothing that I'm worried about. And I remember packing up to go to college uh, my junior year and I had a full-blown breakdown because I had so much shit and I didn't know what to do with it. And I had to move it all out and I was freaking out. And that's what sparked that, like, that minimalism movement. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious, you know, and like the nomadic lifestyle, it is very decentralized and, and not having a ton of stuff. And thankfully, I've sold a lot of shit on Facebook and, and gotten money back. But I'm curious, you know, do you see yourself kind of ever finding like that one home kind of ground like in the future? Is that a goal? And you're kind of just like immersing yourself now to get all these valuable experiences and, and, and travel and be really finding out who you are and then kind of settling down long term? Or, yeah, I'm just curious. 100%. I, you know... I understand that we have natural desires to live a certain way, depending how old we are, right? That's why all teenagers become rebellious. We are hardwired to become rebellious, to leave our nest, to go and explore and spend more time with our peers. You know, this age, uh, although it's normally pushed back because we usually die in a few decades, uh, we normally be having kids now, but now within this structure, like we have this desire to go and explore and see opportunities that are in the world and be grounded in this reality of, of our earth. So I understand that give it five more years, I'm probably going to want to settle down. I'm going to want to have kids. I'm going to want to have land. I'm going to want to have things, but that's not there yet. So I'm going to ride this for all I can right now, because I know that when that time comes, if I don't live this to the fullest, I'm going to regret it, right? I even regret not going extra rogue when I had the chance to go extra rogue, when I had less opportunities, when I had less 
I don't even have any responsibilities, but when I had less responsibilities, like I regret not going full rugged Vietnam jungle on a motorcycle in one bag, even though like I still can do that. I got a little tipsy the other night and I almost purchased a flight to Vietnam. And I remembered I had some things that I'm going to be doing later this month, but like, I understand that this is going to come to an end. So why not ride it to its maximum until then? I mean, that's cool. I mean, that's, that's definitely the mindset. I think, uh, I like, I kind of like the balls to the walls, uh, kind of mentality in a way. I mean, I'm definitely not going to lie. That's so far away from my natural personality because my natural personality is like security routine. Um, that's like where my, my mind has found safety and thrives. And I've known that for me, it's like, it's time to push that. And definitely, that's why I think talking to people like yourself or um, uh, Ryan Carter, like we we're talking about pre-show, it's it, it's cool to see that it's cool to see other people taking leaps and knowing that they don't even know the full story, like it's still being written for their life, and they're you know they're still like open to making mistakes and all these things. It just it's refreshing to me to talk to people that haven't figured it out but have figured out at least an idea of what they want. So it, it gives me hope for myself and other people that, uh, that, that you can just take the leap and then, you know, shit happens, but, uh, you can find your path. Yeah. And I'm curious, maybe, maybe the thing that I want to add and transition here is like, for me, I, I, I've done a ton of traveling too, and I'm probably more advanced in the stage of like, I just want like land and like family and routine, but still I'm I'm teeter tottering and just do like cool shit locally Um, but one of the biggest reasons is because I find that like traveling a ton, like it just affects my routine and productivity a bit. So I'm curious diving into that because I know obviously you talk a lot online about like optimizing productivity and, you know, working remote. I mean, I don't know how often you're actually moving place to place. I think that's where people get kind of misconstrued is like, oh, you're traveling. How do you get anything done? It's like, well, if you actually just stay in one place for a month, it's really no different than like being somewhere else. But if you're changing places every four days or three days, you're going to be spending more time transit than, you know, in one place. So I'm curious, you know, how do you balance that productivity? Like, what do you do to hack that? Uh, How has that evolved over the past, you know, year or two? It's a great question. So first of all, need to make a clarification on what travel is to me. I like slow travel. My goal when traveling is not to go and see as many sites as I can in a four day period. My goal is to go somewhere and completely immerse myself in the culture and the lifestyle there. Right. And that's what a lot of people get wrong. Like, I'm going to go to Mexico and I'm going to be drinking Coronas on the beach. I'm not going to learn Spanish. Mine is like, I'm going to go to this town and I'm going to understand like the deep nuances behind the culture and the lifestyle here. And I'm going to live it to its fullest. I'm going to be that a chameleon there for a month. Right. 45 days seems to be my cutoff point. And then I'll get all of my all I need out of it from a learning experience. And then I'll move on to the next one. Now, in terms of productivity, I'm not a very productive person. I'm not a very driven person. I have been in the past and like I can do it if I want to. But at the end of the day, like my goal is I want to build things that enable me to live this lifestyle and not have to feel bad about it, not have to feel like I'm going behind the computer. So I've had that uh, that, that lens for so long, for so long. That's just how I look at work. It's like, how can I get the maximum amount of output with a minimum amount of input, right? How can I create the maximum amount of value and just remove everything else that is frivolous, right? No meetings, no meetings, no redundant like work. What are these North Star goals and metrics that I'm trying to hit? How can I find the path of least resistance to them? It's no different than in college, right? Like I was a, like, 
I was a degenerate in college, right? I was partying all the time, like weekdays, whatever it may be. I, I didn't like doing work, but I still graduated with like an A average because I was just good at identifying what I needed to do to max out those points, build myself some level of safety net for poor and, you know, just get the most out of it. That's actually a really good point because that's sort of where my mindset has drifted to is sort of like how, because I, I too can be pretty productive but it's, it's in like spurts. It's not like an everyday thing. And I definitely don't measure my, my day by productivity. I definitely know people that do like if they didn't get X, Y, Z done every single day or, or if they sat around on the beach all afternoon or something, they, they'd call that day a failure because they have that sort of, uh, I hate the hustle, the hustle mindset is the word I was looking for. Um, and so for me, it's like building systems that sort of create, uh, a cognitive machine that do the work either for you or just creates a system that's fluid. But I'd sort of love to like, how, how could you kind of get into that more about how to, how you've sort of set up systems for yourself to allow that for your lifestyle? Because I, I, I find that topic really interesting. I feel like it's a, it can definitely be a, a chink in the chain for people to figure that out. Cause a lot of times they, they just feel like they have to go, go, go all the time. Um, yeah. But that you never achieves to- the actual goal. You're spot on. And it's that hustle culture. So you have to decondition yourself from that hustle culture mindset. Realize that maybe maybe it is what you want to do. But for a lot of people, I don't want to be hustle maxing 24-7. I was hustle maxing 24-7. And it was frivolous, in my opinion. So it really came down to that. Um, a lot of it was being in a situation where I was leading a team and figuring out how to ru- have that team run as asynchronously as possible. Being all in different time zones, having a set goal, and just getting those reps in over two years of building up that system building mindset, that operations building mindset that enabled us to be hyper productive with the least amount of downtime. Because my business partner uh, at the time, he was, you know, typical old school Harvard MBA, a lot of the bureaucracy of traditional corporate world. And I had to recondition that. And like, I think that's why he, he liked having me on was because it was like, we don't need these two hour meetings. We're setting hard 45 minute stops at every single one of these meetings. We're going in these meetings with an agenda and then we're going to attack. We're going to have the same one next week. So I think a lot of that was getting those reps in in a what you would call like a safe or maybe a structured setting. And then after that, it really comes down to like your proclivities. So for me, I know how I work. I know how I get the most yield from my efforts. That's communication, that's relationships, and that's building systems. So everybody that I pursue to work with, I know their archetype. I know the type of person they are. They're really good at putting their heads down and grinding. They're really good at getting shit done. And I love that. And I value that so much. And I tell everybody I work with, it's like, listen, I'm going to design the train. I'm going to build the tracks, but I need you to be the guy that's running that caboose, that's running that engine. So that's what I do. And I find out where I can provide value to these people so then they can utilize their their innate tendencies and perform at their best. That's really what it is. It comes down to self-awareness. How can I provide the most value in a way that I enjoy that doesn't feel like work to me? And then find someone who has the inverse of that. So for me, it's like I'm the most productive when I'm at a cafe with my notebook or just walking around the street. That's where I get my work done. That's it. And then I'll have a few sessions on the computer here and there. But all of my work gets done talking to people and my work gets done thinking. So I just optimize for that. And then that doesn't feel like work. Like I'm, I'm working while I'm, you know, eating. I'm working while I'm walking around. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And, and you talked about like Tim Ferriss's like four hour work week and, and things like that. And it's like. I realize that too. It's just like you get into these corporate world settings and A, 
everybody is so inefficient with their time. B, there's so many like, you know, just meetings for no reason. Like there's just so many inefficiencies like across the board. And then C, they're cognitively not at an optimal level. So it just takes like longer for people to do things. And I am 100% on the same page as you. And I get in these spurts of it's like, oh, I feel like I have to get all this stuff done, especially like right now, it's just, you know, there's things blooming in many different directions. But at the same time, like I'm never going to compromise like my passion, my work-life balance. I mean, that's why it's just like backpacking for two days and I'm going to be hiking like all the next like couple of weeks because like that's what I want to do and I can still be productive and get stuff done like when I need to because I think, yeah, like Ryan said, this hustle culture, Gary V, honestly, like I can't stand it because it doesn't allow people to really find out who they are, what they're passionate about. And then you just get stuck in this like rhythm for so long and you burn yourself out. And are you really happy? And now you made all this money and it's like, all right, now you have to keep managing all this stuff. Like when is the end point? Like when are you going to get out of that and then really enjoy your life? And to me, that was never what it was about. But I think it's important to be like cognitively on top of your game to be able to be like, hey, I'm going to sit down for like two hours and just get a day's worth of work done. And then even the next day, I might be good to just chill. So I know that's kind of how you are probably. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, how do you like, let's dive into some health supplements, brain healing, brain boosting stuff. Like how did you heal your brain from concussion? And like, how would you do it today? What are you using today for like stacks to get this stuff done? Or just how is Noah optimizing health when he needs to get shit done? Yeah, it's very <laughs> funny that you mentioned that. And you know, one thing with me is I'm I'm an all or nothing guy and I get bored super easily. So even if I find the perfect protocol, if I find the perfect everything, which I have found in the past, I think, I, I get bored. Like I'm just too I, I'm like, that's great, but I can't have a nice thing. Like I always need to be experimenting new stuff, which usually makes things worse, but I enjoy it. So right now I'm not really optimizing that much. I'm kind of just living life. And I'm seeing what I'm seeing what outcomes happen when I'm living more recklessly, if you want to say that, right? Not getting as as effective of sleep, right? Drinking more, having more social interactions, you know, not being as on top of my ass and just doing it as like a, a, a last minute basis with all my shit. And it's interesting. I don't think it's sustainable, but it's a good change of pace. Now, in terms of re- repairing my brain, I think the first and foremost thing, it's not about what do you include? It's about what do you remove? So I was in a state of hyperinflammation. I'm someone that doesn't have a very strong natural detox capability because of genetic proclivities, but also because I took Accutane, which completely destroyed, you know, my bile ducts and other things that make it very difficult for my body to naturally detox from toxins. So it it really came down to a lot of it, just living a low toxin lifestyle, right? Reducing neuroinflammation so you can put your brain in a state of optimal recovery. That's probably the most important thing there, right? And then for me, that also looked at other things, like what were my triggers? And not just looking at my triggers and being like, "Uh uh-oh, like this is a trigger, I have to avoid it entirely, but going deeper and saying, "Uh uh-oh, this is a trigger, what's causing this trigger, right? What's making me unable to handle multiple noises at once? What's making me unable to form coherent sentences? What's making me unable to tolerate glucose in my brain? Why do I operate so much more effectively on ketones? So a lot of it was that. In terms of like specific, like, I guess you want to call it neurogenesis protocols. First and foremost was reducing neuroinflammation. Secondary was increasing blood flow to my brain, particularly my frontal lobe, because I have a relatively underdeveloped frontal lobe to begin with, and the concussion did not help that whatsoever. 
right? So looking at that there and then just digging deep into what those symptoms were, observing them, and then just reverse engineering solutions to them. So for me, like I really love cholinergics. I find that my brain operates really well when I have a really strong supply of choline, have that acetylcholine production happening. Um, the, the blood flow is really important because the more blood you get to your brain, the more nutrients and oxygen you get to your brain. As you know, it's no different than muscles. Your muscles are get damaged when you work out and they recover better when you have more blood flowing to them and you have more nutrients and oxygen in that blood. So it's overall just being healthier. And then digging deeper into the nuance, I looked up, I, I like found ways to upregulate my dopamine receptors, which I found really awesome. I use certain like gray space drugs, pharmaceuticals that I can get here for like a specific use case, like improving my or excuse me, recovering lost memories. And that was uh, something in the Racetam family, which I found effective. I found the risk profile low and I did find it effective. You know, one thing that was actually really beneficial for me, which is funny because it's so cliche, was lion's mane. Lion's mane was incredibly potent at improving my like BDNF and nerve growth factor. And I found that to have incredible improvements in my cognition, my ability to be focused and to be present and my ability to articulate myself most importantly. I was a guy that always prided myself on my ability to share ideas and those concussions. And I think also the SSRIs robbed me of that ability to speak elegantly. And Lion's Mane, I found to be hyper effective at improving that. Um, I would like to add a caveat. Do not hyperdose, megadose Lion's Mane. I've been reading some stories of it kind of causing like a central nervous system overload and causing a lot of problems with people. Uh, look up Lion's Mane recovery if anybody's interested in the potential negatives. Um, but yeah, so I did that. And then I did things that were objectively not leaning towards 100% of my goals. And this is something that people really have to understand. My goal at that point was neuro or reducing neuroinflammation, right? That, reducing neuroinflammation and putting my brain in a state of optimal recovery. My other goals, like improving androgen sensitivity, improving overall hormone profile, those were goals, but this goal was more important to me. So I was using compounds that were not going towards these goals, potentially even being detrimental to these goals, but focused on these goals for a short period of time. That looked like taking reishi. That looked like taking curcumin, right? Like high dose tumor. Things that are anti-androgenic in the, like in the short term, but they contribute towards this goal. So I did a lot of stuff like that. And it took me getting out of that mindset of being like, things are either good or bad, but rather understanding that things have a specific use case. So I did that. And to be honest, I think one of the most important things that I did was just really prioritize my hormones. You know, like I do believe that, you know, testosterone in particular and the androgens in general are one of the most potent healing tools that anybody can utilize. So that was a big focus of mine as well. Right. Um, but yeah, those were the main things that I did. Obviously, I did a few other things. A lot of it was just like improving uh, overall function, you know, because there is no brain body disconnect. It's all the same. It's all the same system. Like it's all getting pumped by the same circulatory system, the same immune system. So improve everything. And those little nuances will improve. I actually made the biggest strides, I believe, when I started focusing on my liver health, right? When I started focusing on my liver health and improving my overall detox and redox, you know, shout out Ryan Carter, those things all impacted me beneficially. And going back, if I were to change things, I would do more things for post or like pre-concussion protocol and then immediate post-concussion protocol, right? Like I probably shouldn't have been drinking a week after my second concussion. I probably shouldn't have been in bright lights. I probably shouldn't have been exercising super, super hard. I probably shouldn't have been skiing right after. So there's a lot of things that you learn. Uh, hindsight's 2020. I'm very happy with where my brain's at now. I don't think that concussions, maybe they did have some effect on me. I don't care. It's out of my control at this point. I've gotten myself to a point where I'm comfortable with my cognition. Yeah. No, I mean, all that stuff's super interesting. I know Tristan can relate to that. I mean, we talked about, uh, we did a show with just me and him where we were talking about his concussion recovery and how I don't think you sought something out for like six months. 
Is that right, Tristan? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of similar. Like, I didn't know I had a concussion. And then, like, yeah, I went skiing. I was drinking. Like, that that acute recovery phase, I think, is, like, really what does – is make or break. I mean, and that's what you're saying. Yep. So, like, if you just don't know and you do all the things wrong in that, like, first two to four weeks after your your injury, like, you can really set yourself up for failure. So, that's why it's it's interesting to hear that. And, you know, you mentioned a lot of things. Yeah, lifestyle habits could have probably been better. It's it's the same thing for me. I mean, I was like early on, like I had a pair of blue light blocking glasses that were probably shit quality, but I, I tried that stuff and, and it, it did help. But in general, there's so much more I would do now. And I think you talked about something, which I'm curious because for me, like I still sort of, it's gone down a lot, but I still for the longest time after, even I felt better, I had this innate fear of like, oh, I'm just going to get another concussion if I do, if I go off a of jump skiing or like if I try like combat sports or what have you, or just play soccer again. So I'm curious, yeah, what, what you would, you know, how your mindset has changed. Like, do you do anything like prophylactically? Because I've been researching, like, for example, like there's some doctors, you know, talking about methylene blue. I've researched that a lot, improving mitochondrial function. That's something you could take like prophylactically if you do like spar. Yeah. But then it's like, you know, how often are you doing this? And, and there's other things. So I'm curious, do you do any of that stuff now? Uh, say when you're fighting and how do you treat like apprehension into getting back into like full contact things that could potentially cause a concussion when, you know, you have a history. Yeah. So if I were to do more prophylactic stuff, it would be methylene blue acutely creatine, mm -hmm. just, you know, accumulatively. And then I'd probably do phosphatidylserine as well. Um, but now, you know, I don't really care. I'm going to be honest. I don't care. I didn't like that. That thing looming in the back of my mind made me almost a hypochondriac. And I have this innate belief that I'm highly resilient. The amount of shit that I was given and the amount of like situations that I've been in, like, I really like, I should be fucked from a biological standpoint. I don't think I had the best genetics to begin with on top of that, like given Accutane, given a fuck ton of ADHD medication, given, you know, a, a myriad of antidepressants over an extended period of time. Like I should be, you know, for all intents and purposes, a heady vegetable. But uh, I do believe that I'm resilient, and whether I like it or not, all of my, all of the things that bring me the most joy in life have a high proclivity for brain damage. Right? I love. There's nothing I love more than sparring and fighting and training. There's nothing I love more than surfing and getting absolutely buckled by waves. There's nothing I love more than riding a motorcycle without a helmet on. So. I accept that's a risk I have to take. I do believe that I am resilient. And I think just that innate belief in and of itself is somewhat neuroprotective, even from a placebo standpoint. Um, but to me, it's just like, I'm done worrying about it. I'm sick of worrying about it. It's not contributing to betterment of my life. I will roll the dice. I'm always a guy that rolls the dice because I always feel like I have nothing to lose, to be honest. So, you know, it just, it doesn't serve me to be worried about it. I'm going to be honest. And that's not good medical advice at all. Don't take it as medical advice. That's just how I genuinely think about things at this point. Yeah, and I just want to chime in here one more time before Ryan has probably another point too. But it's like you can create these innate immune responses that actually bring on more inflammation just from like the mindset you have. So I think there's really something to that. And I talked about this on like, you know, an old podcast I had for brain healing. So I really think if you live this apprehensive life, and, you know, you're just constantly worried. I mean, it's the neuroticism that like, to me embodies like what's wrong with most health influencers as well. It's the same strive for perfection 
that in reality is bringing your stress levels higher and you're creating all these innate immune responses to things when you're not, you know, absolutely perfect and nothing's going to be absolutely perfect. But then if, you know, fighting, skiing, surfing, soccer, whatever, like if these things bring you like a level of joy, like I just started playing soccer again and it's like, it's so fun and I'm having like such a great time, even though I like pulled my quad the first second game I ever played. It's like, that just brings you up to another level that it's it's worth it sometimes. Like the trade-off is there, but you have to evaluate that for yourself. And obviously, you know, if you're in a really bad situation, you probably need to work on some healing first. But like what what is the goal? Like what is the reason for healing? It's so you can do these things again. What's the reason for optimal health? Like people always tell me, it's like you do all this crazy shit or it's like, oh, you know, go hiking all day, 26 miles. I did this. That's not healthy. What it would, why be healthy when you can't do things that you love doing? Like that's the whole reason to have yeah, optimal health. Turned off by so the longevity movement. I used to be pretty big into yeah. the longevity idea, but it's like, I don't want to be perfect. I want to be resilient, right? And these probably, these guys probably aren't even going to get it right. So why are you sacrificing? They're not. They're, they're making so many assumptions, like decade, like there's, yeah, it's great. I'm glad they're doing it. I saw your tweet the other day. It's like, thank God we have these idiots like, you know, Brian Johnson, Dave Asprey. They're doing all this shit. So we'll know if it actually works. Yeah, they're getting good <laughs> data points. All power to them. I'm not going to do any of it. Maybe I'll take some of it and like, oh, thanks for letting me know about this thing. Like, that was me with rapamycin for a little bit, um, resveratrol and stuff like that. But it's like you look at them and you're like, are you healthy right now? Like we have to define what healthy is. Are you vital right now? Do you have vitality right now? And that's what I want. That's all I want. I just want vitality because I've had my vitality taken from me multiple times, right? Like I've felt horrible. I've felt super shitty. Like life sucks. Uh, I can barely like, like I can't do anything because I just feel like shit. And like, I never want to be there again. So my goal is just to have the most vitality for the longest period of time. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get there, even if it goes against, you know, whatever the uh, Stanford PhDs and MDs are saying, Uh, all power to them, respect to them as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, because it's like, we talk about perfection or whatever. And I actually, I think you made a really good point there, Noah, about, about other people doing the work for us to see what will work and, and not being perfect. Because I mean, People always talk about ancestral living, I think is like one of the one of the examples on social media that people talk about, but there's no way that they were perfect. Like they definitely had nutrient deficiencies and like all these crazy things going on just because like in an, in an, if you had to live in the wild, it's very hard to do things sufficiently. Like we, the level of access we have now will never be you, – you're never going to replicate that. It's just never going to happen. And so – and, and actually, the the mindset point that I think Tristan was making, you were making too, know about how you can sort of uh, induce inflammation almost psychosomatically. Definitely believe in that. I actually like. I remember when I first started getting neuropathy symptoms in summer 2019. I would have spasms in my arms at night, um, where my arms would like do this independently of me being able to control them. It was, it was insane. And I actually stopped sleeping in like the room that they started in because I just had such trauma associated with that room afterwards of like, this is where it all started. But I noticed that it was actually my mental state making all my symptoms like nine X worse. It was, it was insane. Like once I calmed down, I actually read a book called calm the F down was the title. Once I read that book and I started like bringing my, myself into a parasympathetic state a little bit, even though I was still having symptoms, like I got at least 30% better just doing that. And so there's so much you can do mentally that I think is just like 
they either people just don't believe it's a thing or they're not willing to put in that work. But like, if you're not willing to put in the mental work as well as like the, the physical things you do, you eat, you like supplement all that other stuff, you can actually negate so many of those, those positive things by just not being in the right state of mind and being in like hysteric all the time. So that's my two cents. And I like that you brought up the, the flaws in the ancestral living approach. I very much live ancestrally. Like that was really one of my biggest driving factors for a long period of time. But we also have to remember that modern problems require modern solutions. That would be great. Like if, because the environment that we grew up in, the environments that our parents grew up in and our entire lineages grew up in, which directly affect us on an epigenetic level, they were imperfect, right? They had their flaws. They had this toxicity that continues to stick with us to this day. So even if we go perfect, perfectly full, ancestrally accurate, we're still going to have these lingering issues that are hardwired in us and in our biology. So another factor of that, you know, modern problems require modern solutions. But there's a secondary factor uh, that I believe his name was, is it Daniel Lieberman? Uh, he wrote like the, the, the story of the human body. And he's like, we also have to remember that like our goals are like, we weren't built to be perfect. We weren't built to feel good all the time. We were built to reproduce, right? And like, that was kind of that. And you can reproduce when you're not at 100%. I want to be at 100%, right? Like, you know, sue me. I want to feel really, really good. And I want to perform really, really well. And if that means I have to go a little bit super physiological, I have to go a little bit super physiological and I'm okay with that, right? Like there are these things available at a disposal. I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to do that. And like, it, if, if I feel educated and empowered enough to do it, like I'm, I'm going to do it. So, you know, methyl and blue, we talk about that. That is a completely synthetic substance, right? And there's people that are saying like anything that's synthetic should be avoided, but they still like methyl and blue. So there's some contraindications there that I don't like. Um, anytime that I really dive into any ideology, like I immediately get turned off by it. And I really focus on not tying myself to any ideology. Um, and I just like play with them. I explore them. I think the ability to take an idea and take a concept and play with it in your mind without fully identifying it as good and bad, good or bad is the one biggest differentiator of being okay and being great. And like really having a unique mindset, a unique viewpoint and having unique ideas. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so true. And it's like, the problem is you can't like, you can say, you know, X about like a certain supplement or, and then some people, you know, it's just all taken out of context. In reality, you know, the ancestral, you, know, you have raw carnivores who live in fucking New York city in a 10 story skyscraper. Like they have no room to talk. Um, but I totally agree with you. And, and this is something that took me a while to figure out because I was taking, you know, so many supplements when I was, you know, first getting into the health scene and I have a specific stance on a lot of them. But for me, it's like, if you don't have your baseline figured out and that's why, like, I see people who give you a lot of shit when it's like, well, look at his baseline. Like he's totally immersed in nature all the time. Like he, he values a lot of things that he's just like, not even saying because yeah these are all tools and what's your goal you know are you like trying to achieve optimal performance like you're saying like 100 percent? are you 50 and just trying to like you know feel a little bit better or are you trying to like actually reproduce start a family because at the end of the day yeah the electro pollution for example like just the pollution in air in water and toxicity across like so many things like yeah a thousand years ago, like none of this existed. I mean, yeah, they had their own other issues, but it's, you can't compare it. So you have to weigh everything. And and I'm curious kind of where you stand in terms of the supplements. For me, I've landed on like, 
you know, if we can get it from Whole Foods, then that's always best because, you know, we had like Stefan Van Fleet on here who's talking about the synergism of mm-hmm. micronutrients we just can't even comprehend. So if you take isolated compounds, you know, you're really never going to achieve what, what nature does. But there are some things, you know, safer than others, like, you know, magnesium, for example, and, and that has benefits across the board. Um, but like that, and if we make it endogenously, like vitamin D, like if you can just get it from the sun, uh, and that's obviously more optimal in ways that we don't even understand, then yeah but of course if you live in iceland or something like there's there's so much context with everything but i'm curious kind of where you land on on that spectrum of like supplementation in terms of what you think is is worth you know risk reward ratio important to me like when it comes to nutrients like macro micronutrients i get all my stuff from whole foods right like i'm eating the most nutrient dense foods on a daily basis I prioritize my body's yep. natural ability to actually absorb these nutrients because nutrients mean nothing if you can't absorb them, right? So you can eat all the oysters you want. You can eat all the beef liver you want. But if you have like a myriad of issues, like stemming from just like poor bile secretion, right? Low stomach acid, intestinal permeability, inflammation, gut dysbiosis, you're not going to be able to absorb any of those. So I don't really take any of those like nutrient-based supplements. I don't take athletic greens. I just eat really good because I love cooking. I love food. Like I have an infatuation with food and I always have. Like it's just so hardwired in me. I go and I get oysters every day. I get seafood every day from my boy Juan right over there. I'm going to go there after this. You know, I eat red meat all the time. Like I, I, I believe that I have nutrition dialed because nutrition was my first love because it was a thing that I could control on a daily basis. Now, there's other things where it's like, I'm not going to be able to get them from nature. I take that back. Most of the things that I take, most of the supplements I take are from nature, right? Like a lot of the supplements I take are herbal supplements that I'm taking in their, in their natural form, unless I have a reason to take them at a hyperpotent form, right? That's when they become, I call them like medicinal, clinical, therapeutic, therapeutic doses. That's a different story, but I'm not doing them because some dude on the internet told me to take them. I'm doing them because I have a specific goal with my specific knowledge and understanding of my biological systems, and I'm trying to supercharge them and see what those results will give, right? That's why I'll take things like alpha GPC. That's why I'll take certain things that'll address natural innate deficiencies or lagging areas in my body or in my system. But I think the difference is I really dig into the research and the, the science and the understanding behind them. And I also give myself a margin of error because I understand that we don't understand everything. We have a far from perfect understanding of any substance, any compound, any tool. And I also like to roll the dice. I'd like to preface the app. I like rolling the dice. If I get some negative side effects, it's worth it for me for that experimentation because that brings me joy. Yeah, that's actually such so many good points in that. It actually brought up a thought I had too about um, – the idea of people, I mean, I'm, I'm sure this happens to you, Noah, where like you'll tweet something and someone's like, show me the study on blah, 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 what you just said. And the, I think Jack Cruz said it best. And he was basically saying that nature is, is the study. And you can't, all these studies are done in an isolated whatever, when they're studying these compounds in a sterilized lab under a cell culture. And it's not the natural environment. There's no natural light hitting this stuff. It's There's so many factors that you can't get necessarily in an, in an assessment. Not that they're not valuable, but it's, it's sort of like blood work. It doesn't tell you the whole story. It sort of shows you that snapshot. And so I feel like there's a level of, a level of experimentation. I mean, obviously, like some genetic stuff, like you mentioned, alpha GPC, that's something that I took for a while. Um, because I have a really bad ability to synthesize choline. Like my choline just sucks. Like I need to eat like nine eggs to get the same choline that someone can get from three or something. So 
I'm here slamming eggs and uh, doing alpha GPC and stuff like that because of that stuff. There's like MTHFR, which is a debatable thing on, on how important it is. But I think it's about all these, how all these things interwork and are interconnected together because someone could have bad MTHFR like me talking about genes. But if you optimize it by eating right, getting your detox right, uh, being in, as in a natural environment as possible, I can still make mine operate pretty damn good unlike someone maybe with the same gene mutations that lives indoors all the time and eats crap. So there's so many nuances. I, I don't think there's like this one direction. And so I think you made a lot of good points in there. Um, I just had to put my two cents in there about the, the genetic stuff because I feel like people miss that there's even nuances within people that have the same genetic makeup. And yes. so I feel like there are just so many more important factors than That's just such a, good point. a equals B. Very good point, Ryan. And I like that you bring up the study, the nuance within studies, right? I don't think people have, nobody commits to building a baseline foundation of scientific literacy to understand what studies imply and the the context behind studies and when studies are actually developed. Like if something's not going to save lives or make money and most likely both because saving lives makes money, it's not going to get a study, right? Like no one's going to study the effects that ginkgo biloba has on cognitively effective mid like young men, right? They're going to look at that on people in cognitive decline because Alzheimer's is a multi-billion dollar industry, right? So there's not going to be studies on why does, you know, why does nicotine help you? Actually, there are studies on why nicotine helps you with baseline functioning, um, cognitive functioning. But like, anyway, like you have to understand, like they're, they're not, everything has been studied. A very small amount of things have been studied in a very, very isolated environment for a very specific outcome. They have their biases going into it. They have things that they're looking for. So studies are great for leading you in the right direction, but they're not going to solve everything. So I found the best outcomes when I try to meld all different approaches and explanations, right? So you've got like the traditional scientific literature. And then I always like melding that with Ayurveda. I'm not really big into Ayurvedic medicine from a a fundamental standpoint, but I love finding those overlaps. And I'm like, oh, like, okay, I'm seeing overlap here. The more overlaps I can find, the better I feel. Obviously taking like, uh, forget what it's called, but like if something's been used for a really, really long time, I'm going to take that into account like pretty significantly. That's why I love Chinese herbs a lot. But then you have to look at the nuance between that with the modern world. Like a lot of Chinese herbs, unfortunately, are loaded with heavy metals, right? And me as someone who has poor detox capabilities and heavy metal toxicity from before, like I have to take that more into account. And the most important thing that you brought up there is the biospecificity of each of us as individuals from a mutation standpoint, from an epigenetic standpoint, and also from a traditional genetic standpoint. We all are built to thrive in different environments. We have some common denominators, but at the end of the day, an Inuit is going to perform better in that environment than a, a Maori, right? Like we, we thrive better in different environments. That's why we can all do the same thing and have drastically different outcomes, right? Like you and I could probably eat the same food, all get fat, you'll be lean and shredded as shit. That's just how it works. And it takes a certain level of curiosity, once again, desire for self-awareness to really just wake up every day and, and ask yourself those questions with the modern world. And I think that's maybe something that's a little different with me is I just have an innate inner voice that's questioning everything. It's like, why do I feel good when I take this? Or like, why do why do I feel puffy this morning? Like, what did I do yesterday? What did I do the day before? What causes puffiness in the morning? And like, try to just cross-reference that. Like, honestly, for me, life is just one big science experiment. And that's been something that's been pretty constant. And for a guy that doesn't have a lot of continuity in his life, and likes to change things up all the time. I've never not been interested in experimenting. 
Yeah, and I think that's what like decentralized health is all about. It's about like knowing how your bioindividuality is actually like gonna pertain to the information out there and, and you really need to take that education into your own hands. I mean it's a level of personal responsibility. You can hire a health coach, but at the end of the day, like no one knows your biology better than you. So I think you embody that and that's really awesome. And just wrapping up here, last question. What are you like most excited about like that you've been researching like frontier of health that like you're you're super stoked about kind of that's emerging or you're going to try soon something some experiment that's a good some question. No experiment I'm, I'm itching to get back into like full neurotic biohacker mode because I've been very non full neurotic biohacker mode and once again this has been an experiment right like what is life like if I just chill on the beach and I do work that I really enjoy and I have really good relationships and I actually enjoy my time outside of like health outcomes and it's been great like i've I've gotten like pretty jacked uh out here like just training and having fun and like it's cool but i'm very interested in peptides i think that is the next frontier and i i have mixed feelings and mixed opinions about it but as someone who has dealt with like pretty serious health issues in the past i see a lot of opportunity there for healing but like man what i'm really interested in right now is just how much can i placebo myself into getting better right and how much do my lifestyle choices impact me as a person because we know they do and especially on a hormonal level like everyone's like no you can't like increase your testosterone by like how you live your life by like how you think and yeah you can because we know how much our thoughts impact our cortisol which is a hormone Mm -hmm. i'd like to remind everybody so i think that's really kind of like where i'm at um to be honest like the the phase that i'm in right now i think i've kind of maxed out the roi on like the biological biohacking and I've got a really good baseline and understanding. I'm honestly more interested in the more nuanced aspect of things in the more esoteric area, right? Like how much stuff can I actually actualize into my life by changing the way that I think, right? And I've always been into that, but that's what I'm really into right now. I know that's not the answer that you want. I love it. No, that's a great answer. I think I think it's awesome. I think the positive affirmation, the positive mindset is like a you know, it's just a feedback loop that keeps on giving. I think that's people's mm-hmm. biggest downfall is their mindset. So I really think the power of like figuring that out and placebo is will take you further than any one compound probably ever could. Um, so yeah, thanks so much. No, this is a great chat. Yeah, well, first of all, where can people find you? There's nothing I love Most more on than Twitter, right? hopping on calls and ranting. But uh, Twitter, that's really kind of like the only place that I really do stuff. Uh, Noah Ryan Co. Um, and then the podcast as well. You can find it on my Twitter. And I, I kind of just shoot shit up there as well. It's all very lo-fi because my goal with all of this is not to be perfect. I don't want people – I think you know all of us are the same. It's like you don't want people following you because you have good production value. You want people following you because you have good ideas. So I, I guess like you know for me it's a tangent. But you know just focusing on how I can keep those idea flows as frictionless as possible – so yeah, check out the Twitter. I've got like, scroll through that and there's some good information. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, man, for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of Decentralized Radio. We'll see you next time.